morning. Our passage today is Micah 6, 1 through 8. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed? And how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? I remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The word of the Lord. My husband, Fred, uh, traveled to Arizona with his work right as the January ice storm hit here in Portland. (laughs) Yeah, oh, so he's down there enjoying some golf and soaking in some rays, and I'm praying, oh, Jesus, don't let my pipes burst. (laughs) I realized we moved into this house three years ago, and I don't know where the water turnoff is, so thankfully we made it through with no broken pipes this time around. So I give Fred a hard time for abandoning me that week, but in reality, it turned out to just be pure gift. It was a quiet home to, to work in, quiet evenings. And that quiet all week long not only opened up space for me in my physical uh, environment, it seemed to quiet my soul and open up space within me. And one of the things I found emotional space for was to pick up a book that was given to me by someone here at New Hope months ago that I still hadn't read. And the book that she gave me was in, is entitled The Place We Make by Sarah Sanderson. The author is local. Her, pa- her husband is a pastor at Oak Hills Presbyterian Church in Oregon City. And maybe you might be wondering, well, why would you need emotional space to pick up and start reading a book? Well, it's because the place we make looks at the origins of our state, of Oregon. And if you know anything about it, there are pain points in that story. It looks at who lived on the land prior to the 1800s, who took the land, and what were some of the values of people who came from the East Coast and in the South and traveled the Oregon Trail to be here and make the place in which we all now live. History shapes 
community. And there's no divorcing the two. So I knew I picked up the book and I knew it would not be an easy read. But I'm thankful that God created space for me to open it up. The ice storm hit also the same week that we commemorate Martin Luther King Jr. And I began reading because of that from the book of Amos, a minor prophet, because he's so famously quoted from that book. And then I decided I'm just going to keep reading through all of the minor prophets, those bite-sized portions of truth and warning and blessing. Also that same week, you see a convergence happening in my life here? Yeah, right? Yes. Uh, the same week, Amazon delivered to my door a book I had pre-ordered months ago, back in the fall, written by Cole Arthur Riley, entitled Black Liturgies. Our The New Hope uh, Beloved Community team, a team formed actually several years ago with a passion around helping New Hope keep leaning in and and thinking better and responding better to diversity, growing in our love and our understanding, we offered one of Cole's first books called This Here Flesh. I don't agree with all of Cole's theology, but as a mother of two sons in their 20s, sons of color, people of color, I need Cole's voice. I need to know how racism and devaluing of others still hits hard today. Many of our staff listen to uh, Lectio 365. It's an online devotional from the 24-7 prayer movement. Anybody else listen to that on a regular basis? Yeah, some of you. Awesome. So glad to hear it. Well, the exact same time I started reading the Minor Prophets, they started utilizing the Minor Prophets. Another convergence, yes, in a, in a series called the Rewilding Series. And one of the weeks focused particularly on rewilding justice. Maybe that's because sometimes the church has a tendency to tame things. And I think in some ways we've tamed justice. We, we program it. We put it in a box with a lid on it. We, we define it. We control it. And sometimes we even bring it out shamedly and brag about what we're doing in the area of justice. Okay, my friends, before you get a little nervous because I've brought up the J word, can we just define it? Let's just talk about it first from this perspective. Justice is not a new nor a foreign concept to the church nor to theology. It is a biblical concept often paired with Righteousness. In fact, the Hebrew word for justice is used over 400 times in the Old Testament. And often it's describing God's character and what he calls his people to reflect in this world. Here's two verses. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without inequity. Inequity. Just, as upright, just and upright is he from Deuteronomy, then from Psalms. Righteousness and justice are the very foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So put simply, justice and righteousness are a call for all of us to have right relationship with God, righteousness, and right relationship 
with others, justice. And while we may feel the need sometimes to tame justice, to to control it, and I get it, it gets messy. It's messy in our world right now. But guess what? The prophets were not tame. We want to tame it, but we gotta be, we've got to allow ourselves to be reminded that the prophets were never tame. Their words, their dress, their behavior, their pronouncements were a bit wild. And the wildness that we see in them reflects the wildness of a long-suffering God, a very patient God in the face of earthly injustices. Think of the phrase, uh, wild with grief. Probably all familiar with that term, wild with grief. If you have ever sat with parents whose child or young adult has been killed, you've seen that played out. You've seen wildness of grief lived out. I had to do that three times in five years. And my sympathies are with you if you've personally experienced a loss of that, mad, of that magnitude. When someone we love is abused or murdered, they're murdered there is a wildness in our grief. And what that made me think of this last couple of weeks is the fact that anybody anywhere in the world experiencing injustice is God's child. Oh. The child wielding a machete working the jungles, trying to get enough cocoa beans to provide the West with chocolate, getting injured again and again, God's child. The young woman trafficked, or the young woman hooked on drugs and trafficked by the man she thought loved her, God's child, our backyard. Ahmaud Aubrey gunned down while jogging in the neighborhood, God's child. And I got to tell you, you don't tame that kind of grief. There is a wildness to God's grief in our world. And the God we serve envisions, in fact, God created the ideal for societal wholeness, for shalom. For all people everywhere to be able to flourish in community. And when we shatter shalom, as we read about in the prophets, all kinds of wildness begins to break loose on earth and in the heavenlies. Micah, the prophet that we heard uh, just read from earlier, also said back in chapter 2, concerning injustice. That's such a short book. That's the thing about all the minor prophets. They're just bite-sized books on truth. And Micah in chapter two, one through three says this. He said, what sorrow awaits you who lie awake at night thinking up evil plans. You rise at dawn and hurry to carry them out simply because you have the power to do so. When you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property, stealing his family's inheritance. But this is what the Lord says, I will reward your evil with evil. You won't be able to pull your neck out of the noose. You will no longer walk around proudly for it will be a terrible time. And the people of Israel said to Micah, as they do over and over again in the, in the, in the prophets, don't say such things. 
Don't prophesy like that. Such disasters will never come our way. Hmm. John Rosenstiel shared with our teaching team of all four campuses this last week this quote. He said, Jason uh, Zweig of the Wall Street Journal says, there are three ways to be a professional writer or preacher prophet. One, lie to people who want to be lied to and you'll get rich. Two, tell the truth to those who want the truth and you'll make a living. Three, tell the truth to those who want to be lied to and you'll go broke. (laughs) Or as a prophet, preacher, you'll get stoned, run out of town, or fired. Beth Moore posted this week when our story, the church, is told a century from now, and it will be, how much of the American church ran after idols and delusions, false Christs and conspiracies. History will not only fault the pastors for not confronting us with the truth, ouch, but the congregations who forbade them to do so. So many things converged for me during the ice storm to open up my heart again to hard things and hard topics. Can I let you on on a little secret? This topic isn't any easier for me than it is for many of you. I'm going to let you in on another secret. When pastors get busy and they're like they all are, and you're juggling, you're spinning 12 plates, and you know something's got to give, guess what's going to give? The hard thing. And so I needed that week for God to redirect my heart and my mind back to calling the church to lean into hard things. So here we are. Another convergence this year uh, that I noticed that happened not just for me, but for all of us, is that Lent coincided with Black History Month. And I got to thinking, are there pathways that we are exploring in Lent that would help us to walk out and hear God for this topic of justice in our world? Lent in Western culture, we often just focus on personal renewal. And yet mostly in the Old Testament and the New Testament, renewal is always about the community of faith. It's always a communal renewal for the body, for, the, uh, for Israel, and then for the body of Christ. So in the study guide, and I think many of you picked it up, our uh, wonderful uh, comms teams and artists uh, put this together called Realistic Rhythms of Grace. It's the study guide. In the secondary, or I'm sorry, in, in the second week, which is this week on renewal, they chose the secondary passage as Micah 6, which you heard read earlier. Micah 6 is a passage where the people who have gotten wealthy at the expense of others, and they've been warned about it by Micah, they begin to cry out to God. And they say, okay, we hear you. What, what should we do about it? Should we bring you burnt offerings? Should we, should we bring you thousands of rams? Should we pour out, listen to this extravagance, 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children? Wow, it's a lot of extravagance. God, what can we give you? Oh my, can I say this? Can we buy you off? Can we get out of this? 
if we just give you enough, including even our firstborn children? Micah says, no, because God says, no, no, no. I've already told you. Micah says, he's told you. The Lord has told you what is good and what he requires of you to do what is right, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Church, in our effort to know and love and follow Jesus, could we walk the pathways of Lent, things like fasting and confession and sacrifice and prayer, and allow Jesus to enter afresh and anew and reveal to us what he would have us do for times in which we live? Because guess what? Injustice didn't end at the Old Testament. If you look around, it's still alive and well today. And what should the church be doing? What should the church be living out in our day and our age? So let's look at those four things. Four pathways. This is not all the pathways that are made available to us in Lent, but let's think about these four. What about fasting as pathway? Fasting does for us kind of what the ice storm did for me. It creates space. We pull some things out of life and we make room for more time to experience God. Sky Jathani, who's an author, writer, podcaster, John interviewed him a few years ago. He wrote this this week. We mustn't underestimate the importance of subtraction. A flourishing life with God often requires the removal of obstructions that block our vision for his goodness and entangle us in the thorns of sin. Sometimes we see the truth and discover the beauty of God, or sometimes to see the truth and discover the beauty of God, we need to disentangle ourselves from busyness of this life and even busyness of the church. I mentioned to the leadership team on Monday with, uh, as we were talking about this message, that maybe next year, might be too late for this year's Lent, but what if next year, Instead of just adding some things into the church calendar, we took some things off first. Maybe we even, we, we Christians, we love our Bible studies. And I'm not putting them down. I love Bible study too. And don't quit, please. But what if for 40 days of Lent, the church took off formal Bible study opportunities and instead provided opportunities for prayer and for fasting? That we might hear what God is calling us to do in our day. One of the notable things about fasting in the Old Testament is the people kept trying to say, God, we want to fast this, this, and this way. Oh, here, we're going to worship and we're going to fast this, this, and this way. And three passages immediately came to mind, you know, Isaiah 58 and Micah 6 and and Zechariah 7 that all say, yeah, no, that's not what I want from my people. And he presented, God presents the kind of fasting that he wants. Zechariah 7, 9 through 10, a passage that we're not probably as familiar with. Let me show you those two verses with you. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Judge fairly and show mercy and show kindness to one another. Do not oppress widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor. And do not scheme against each other. Okay, 
fasting as pathway. Let's talk a little bit about sacrifice as a pathway. One of the Lectio 365 teachers said, I think about what I sacrifice. I sacrifice my time to Instagram, my money to eBay or Amazon, and my attention to Netflix. And then I give them all up and feel like I've made some form of deep sacrifice for God so that I can live a more centered and calm life. But then he went on, but I don't think that's the kind of sacrifice I'm called to. I'm called to learn to do good, to seek justice and to correct oppression. When I became a Christian, I didn't join a self-help group. I became a member of God's family with a call to live a life of sacrifice, one that would help me help others. My sacrifices shouldn't be about making a better version of myself. Prayer is pathway. In the Lord's Prayer, which is commonly used during Lent to teach the church about prayer, Jesus prays one phrase that I want to call our attention to. He prays, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prophets, both major and minor, make it so clear that one of the top priorities of God is justice on the face of the earth, people in right relationships with each other. Can you imagine racism in heaven? Are we gonna boot people off their parcel of land in heaven? Are we gonna uh, have to hear about human trafficking in heaven? Is there gonna be redlining practices that exclude people? Is that ludicrous to think? Of course it's ludicrous. On the back of our justice t-shirts, I don't know if you noticed in the fall when we had our global justice fair, are simply the words, on earth as it is in heaven. New Hope believes that part of the church's job description is to partner with God in making wrongs right on the face of the earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We live in a messy, messy world. Much is broken. People's spirits are broken. Systems are broken. And missiology is broken if we're not seeking justice for the oppressed and the vulnerable and preaching as Jesus did the good news to the poor. Last one, confession as pathway. Sarah Sanderson has a beautiful chapter on confession in her book. And her book just came out a year ago, actually, and it was on TV last night. I couldn't believe it. Sitting there watching uh, Channel 6 with my husband, we said, oh, let's watch this. It was just a 30-minute clip on, uh, by Ken Boddy on Channel 6 uh, honoring Black History Month. And there was this book that I'm talking about today right there Uh, being talked about on TV last night. Well, she has, like I said, this beautiful chapter on confession that I just, I want to pull out for us to think about and look at today. Turns out that Sarah's relatives helped found Oregon as a state. And they did not speak against the development of exclusionary laws, the intent of which were to make Oregon a black free zone. 
History shapes the community in which we live. And Sarah noticed that when she talked about her ancestors' sins, boy, people got nervous. One of her close friends said to her in a voice just shaking with emotion, America is a good place, Sarah. I feel it in my bones. And America is a good place. She wrote as well, my friend was deeply hesitant to talk about racism, past or present, lest we somehow unseat all the goodness that she knew was there. I'm gonna come back to that in just a moment. But she wrote this too. Other Americans, of course, know it in their bones that racism not only exists here, but causes physical, psychological, economic, and spiritual harm every day in America. In all this fear and uncomfortableness and angst around this topic, especially if Sarah mentioned her own relatives, she just decided to dive back into the scripture and see what God would teach her. And what she found there is that as she read scripture, that the ancestors of our faith recorded in its pages are never discounted nor devalued even while their sin is fully explored. She writes that the same Bible that taught me to honor my mother and my father, the same Bible that sets up its patriarchs and matriarchs as examples of faith, held its ancestors unswervingly to the light of truth. And she said the Bible pulls out skeleton after skeleton, out of closet after closet. The Bible teaches us how to both lift up our ancestors' good deeds. They don't have to be discounted or denied or ignored. We're taught by the scriptures how to lift up our ancestors' good deeds and at the same time be honest about their sin. The Bible's pretty adamant about allowing no hero worship among the people of faith. There is no perfect people of faith in the the pages of the Bible except one. The human heart is such a mixed package of good and bad. I see it every morning in the mirror. I reflect on it every night as I reflect on the day where have the places been that I've leaned in and lived like Jesus and where are the places I stepped back and didn't or worse, acted in a way opposed to who Jesus is. The human heart is a mixed package. And things go south when we deny the full picture of our ancestors and of ourselves. When we make any human being into heroes. And by the way, can I just tell you, Sarah confesses plenty of her own sins in this book, not just uh, her relatives. In fact, she makes some pretty cringeworthy confessions that I'm not sure I would have been brave enough to make in print. Yet I too stand before you this morning and have to say that I catch myself and recognize the racist thought that just went through my brain. I recognize that I sometimes function out of place of hierarchy of value 
of people, groups. And I have to confess it. It's renewal for me. I, have, I can't get to renewal without walking that through. So we look at both personal renewal. We look at the renewal of the body of Christ. And it leads through confession. A staff member this week pointed out uh, that in church history, every major movement of renewal has involved confession and repentance. John, when he coaches us in preaching, which I, I love to interact with John around preaching and learn from him. He think, I, he's one of the, the better speakers I've heard in my lifetime. And one of the things he just says to us, okay, so what's your main idea here? And what is it you want people to walk out the door with? And so as I thought about this particular message, I want you to not have an agenda. Okay, I want us to simply walk away this morning with a willingness to let the pathways of Lent, fasting, sacrifice, prayer, and confession help us hear again from a God of renewal who wants all people to flourish. That's it. That's my goal. That's what I hope you'll walk away with this morning is a willingness to let God open something in your heart that maybe has been closed for a time. I don't have all the answers. Please don't think I ever think that. I don't have all the answers to resolve all the complexities of what's gone before us. I don't have all the answers to the hurt and the pain and the deep brokenness that still exists but I believe with all my heart that God does. And as we turn to God, as we um, listen to the scriptures, we see that God asks his people repeatedly again and again, lean in and listen, be still and know that I'm God and lean in to do the hard thing in this world. He never lets his people off the hook. We're invited in to do the hard thing with God. And here's what I want us to hear that God's vision is always for renewal. It's the pathways of Lent that can, that can get us there. God's vision is never for, and I think sometimes people think this in the world, or maybe we even think it in the church, that the whole goal is to get to repentance and just be kept there. Just no, that's one stop along the way. But we can't get to renewal without the pathway that involves honesty. Coretta Scott King, wife of Martin Luther King Jr. wrote that when they moved to the South, she very quickly realized that they were in the middle of something bigger than themselves. A historical moment, a pivotal moment where they had been placed for impact. She and Dr. King didn't create the moment, they just recognized it. And our church, New Hope, has recently uh, come together with three other wonderful congregations, Willamette and Hope City and, and Beaverton Christian. And it's brought such richness through uh, staff relationships and resources, elder support, delightful congregants, so many fun things for all of us. But do you suppose that there might be a bigger reason? 
that God brought four, I'm gonna say significant churches together for such a time as this? And what if we were all listening? What if we were all listening to what God would have this group of people do? Could we change the place that we have made, the place that has been made? Could we bring greater healing to the Portland area? Could we bring greater healing between people who have, who are just wanting to throw stones at each other? The church has a calling. We have to be different. We have to look different than the way the world's dealing with all of this. Can you lean in and listen? Would you lean in and listen? I hope we will. I was recently, and I'm wrapping up here. I was recently diagnosed with a severe deficiency in vitamin B12. Kind of boring, right? It's just, it's just, but what an impact. I'm telling this one little thing. I went to the doctor back in November and I, my blood pressure was in the basement. It was for weeks 80 over 39. I was dizzy. I was fatigued all the time and I just didn't feel well. And the great news is my doctor ran all these tests and she said, you just lack one thing, B12. And I thought, Wow. It just made me think of the words to the, of Jesus to the rich young ruler. He looked at him and said with love, he loved him. And he said, just one thing you lack. And God in, the, in Revelation told seven churches, you're doing this and this and this so well, but here's what you lack. And we can be firing on all cylinders, church. Our worship may be the best in the city. We may have riveting teachers, high percentage of people in life groups. But if we're not doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God, we're just going to be a show. And we're just going to be sick and deficient and anemic. At our Ash Wednesday service, a person came in through the doors and shared with us that uh, she was going to give up gossiping for Lent. <laughs> I didn't think that was about, I thought that was really good. But then she went on to say, but instead I felt led to give up intolerance. Wow. That's a big step toward justice. Somebody else this week told me on staff, I'm thankful to have staff like this, told me that her goal, her, what she was leaning into for Lent was to deeply listen to other people. Another step that leads us to justice. You've probably experienced it. You have a hard place in your heart towards someone or some, some people. And then you hear their story and something shifts in you. So could you just make a commitment during Lent to listen to people who might be a little different than you, people who have a different theology or a different way of walking in this world and see, does God shift something within you? The pathways of Lent, fasting, prayer, sacrifice, and confession are good pathways that will lead us to renewal. And renewal's never just about us, it's about the world also. God longs that all of us 
would have the opportunity to flourish. Did you know the word Lent just simply means spring season? It means new things coming to life. As we see new flowers blooming everywhere, baby lambs in the fields, and what seemed dead coming to new life. We had such a beautiful picture of new life in those who were baptized this morning. We celebrate with you. And we know, and like Mike said earlier, we do that act in community because renewal is never private. It's about all of us being renewed. Let me close with this prayer from Lectio 365 before we move to the communion tables. Feel free to close your eyes, just soak this in. Prayer says, let me embrace justice and mercy. Grant me humility. Supply me with enough faith to give my life away. And bless me with strength when I grow weary. Lord, let the knowledge of your love fuel my commitment, inform my passions, stir my gratitude, and help me transform the world for you and your glory. Amen.